Jim German is a world-renowned expert in alpine plants and is the former head gardener of the Branklin Garden in Perth. He's in the country as the New Zealand Alpine Garden Society's Steve Newell Memorial Travelling Speaker and will be talking to groups around the country. As well as running the Branklin Garden, Jim's also known for his plant hunting and nursery expertise. He's the author of two books on growing alpine plants. He's retired now, but still volunteers at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, one of the leading botanic gardens in the world. Currently, he is in the Garden City, Christchurch. Morning, Jim. How are you? Very well, Catherine. Uh, thanks very much. It's a privilege to be here. I know you've not long landed in New Zealand. What do you hope to achieve and to do here? To learn a tremendous amount about uh, the way alpine plants uh, grow in nature, uh, in your beautiful country, and to meet lots of great uh, gardeners and plants folk uh, where we can share knowledge. What's special about alpine plants? They're challenging, but uh, when you particularly see them in nature at their best, it's, it's a beguiling experience, something that you never forget. And I think that many of us who enjoy seeing alpine plants in nature want to try and recreate these conditions in our own lowland gardens, in my case in Scotland. Um, and my friend uh, Hamish Brown, who I'm staying with here, uh, in, in his lowland garden. So uh, there lies the uh, challenge. But for me, it's mainly to take photographs, of course, of your wonderful native plants. What is necessary to try and replicate an alpine environment in one's garden? There are some very basic um, requirements and clearly most alpine plants grow in full sun in the mountains so you need an open situation and also when you're walking in the mountains you see that the plants are growing in spartan conditions often just in scree, gravel, tucked into a crevice in, in rocks so the drainage is crucial. They must at um, no time become waterlogged. Um, and, but having said that, um, very often when, when you're walking high up in the mountains, you see that uh, many of these plants are thriving uh, with snowmelt running through their roots. So it's a challenge because they want perfect drainage, but they also need a measure of moisture. How do you overcome that practically? Well, it's, um, it can be hard work. I know my good friend uh, Hamish, he likes to travel and he has a, a superb garden with niche uh, areas where he's growing his alpine plants. So he's rigged up a, an irrigation system that uh, can be programmed from his uh, computer and he knows exactly how much um, watering is required during uh, perhaps a particularly dry spell and if it's a hot dry spell he would never water during the heat of the day he would uh, water late at night or first thing in the morning and so that would be programmed so that he and his wife can travel into the mountains and still water and look after his plants. That is dedication indeed. They don't like competition understandably as well. Not many things try and live in alpine areas. That's very true. Um, in my own experience I have lost some quite choice alpines when I've allowed a particularly choice plant to become encroached by uh, perhaps a slightly more invasive uh, alpine plant that I've planted a little bit too close. So yeah, you, you've got to be quite careful that you 
position these plants in, correctly. If you're going in the mountains hiking and you see a beautiful flowering alpine plant, I, I'm not sure what the rules are. Can you just pick it and bring it home? Uh, and if you do, what is the challenge of getting it established in the backyard? Well, to answer your question very simply, the answer is no, you cannot. And in so many uh, areas of uh, New Zealand and uh, the states where I've travelled and, and obviously in Europe, you find yourself uh, walking in a national park. So you can't even pick a flower if you're in a national park. So national park state is extremely strict. Now, it's ov- obvious that um, uh, if you're in, in a mountainous area and you... You, you came and you had uh, special permission to collect seed. That would be something quite different. But uh, I've been on uh, specific seed collecting um, trips to Japan, where it was organised by the uh, the government uh, and the botanical societies in in Japan. So, for example, that's something different. But if you or I were going trekking in the uh, Southern Alps uh, here in New Zealand, we would le- we would enjoy the plants and leave them well alone. Look, don't touch. One imagines it's not going to survive the journey from any uh, decent uh, hike anyway. And so we, I know you ran a nursery for, for 20 years. Uh, where you are seriously trying to uh, propagate these uh, plants, typically done from seed, yes? Absolutely. Uh, we always feel that um, the strongest plants um, are raised from seed. But having said that, uh, when you're running a nursery and you've got uh, your bread and butter alpine plants, uh, you would raise many of them from cuttings. Uh, that if you've got a, a large stock plant of a companion or a phlox, you could probably take 100 cuttings from that and and uh, you would be doing wanting to do that to create um, saleable plants. But if you were introducing plants perhaps from a botanical source. Uh, We work closely with some botanic gardens in Europe. Um, Seed is by far the best means. Are all alpine plants necessarily the same in uh, the the, the soil or or the moisture demands? As you mentioned, we typically, certainly in this country, think of them amid the scree and the rocks. Uh, But can they vary quite significantly in what they do need to grow in? Absolutely, um, there, and there are always exceptions. We, you know, we were taught as students that most alpine plants grow between the permanent tree line and the permanent snow line. So anything above the permanent snow line, obviously, you won't see anything growing. But there are exceptions to the rules, and one of the plants that uh, we uh, propagated uh, from seed and sold widely when we were in, in nursery business was Gentianella saxosa, which grows way down south. Uh, in, the, in the South Island. And um, so it breaks the rules and grows almost at sea level and grows in a really sandy mixture. So there's an exception to the rules. And also, I think some of the most exciting of all your plants um, are the Salmesias, these wonderful daisies. And very often you find these growing in quite acidic situations, sometimes in turf and, uh, and and that's not uncommon. So when you're looking at uh, the way plants are, are growing in nature, you, you will find quite a bit of variation. They're not all growing in screes. They're not all growing tucked into crevices. Some of them are growing in niche uh, uh, situations. Could be quite moist and damp and, and mossy. Where are some of our New Zealand alpines growing abroad? I think you'll find that um, most botanic gardens... Uh, in 
Europe and in the States where I've just been in Canada and the States have an alpine uh, department and have rock gardens and you'll find that your New Zealand endemics are very well represented in, in these gardens. And indeed, when I was in Japan, there were many uh, uh, nurseries offering a good range of Selmisias and Raolias, and, and you know, typically some of the most exciting and easily grown New Zealand alpines. What is particular about New Zealand alpine plants compared to others, say? Well, the first thing that uh, I notice is that most of them have white flowers, and that clearly has a lot to do with uh, pollinators and um, insects, flies, um, seem to be the main uh, source of pollination uh, in New Zealand, whereas, you know, I, my wife and I were uh, enjoying a holiday in Switzerland in, in June, and uh, we found a lot of the uh, alpine uh, plants were being pollinated by butterflies and moths. And so they're attracted to color. So you do tend to find more blue gentians, red primulas in the European Alps, and less so in New Zealand. So they've adapted um, in New Zealand to, to deal with the correct pollinators, hence the white flowers. What does pollinate them, by and large? Really flies. And, and uh, you know, we, we curse when, when we're on holiday on the west coast of Scotland uh, in July and August. And you're beset with problems with midges and, and flies. And um, over here, clearly they're, they're beneficial. They're very important for pollinating. You've mentioned the Salmizias. Have we also talked about the Kelpha? What are some of the other popular alpine plants? Well, I think that um, the, in, in New Zealand, um, you've, you've got these amazing mats of, of raolia and w what I used to call hebes. I think they've gone into Veronica now. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, there are great long lists of these. And perhaps some of the most exciting and, and challenging uh, alpines are the buttercups. You've got... Uh, probably a long list of, of uh, native buttercups. Obviously one, the Mount Cook buttercup is very famous, Ranunculus lilae, with its white flowers. And then you've got um, many with yellow flowers. Um, and these are more, more challenging to grow, but very beautiful. I'm thinking of the buttercups we used to shine under our chins as kids to get a yellow reflection. Is that a different plant? The, the meadow buttercup that we used to... Um, um, uh, um, give, give, well, I was given as from my mother and to see if we liked butter, which we tucked under our chin. These were meadow buttercups. And um, I dare say that um, if, if it was sensible to do so and, you've, and you found a, a mountain buttercup with um, um, ye yellow flowers, um, it would work exactly the same way. I'm not sure if the, if the, um, the fable or the the myth is necessarily true. Uh, but is it the case that some will reflect and some won't, on, on, depending on different uh, chins? I think that would make, uh, it would be a big difference. Uh, my friend um, Hamish has got an unshaven chin and I don't think that would work. <laughs> and, but I have to mention acephillas as well. I mean, these spike nards, they're, they're really wicked little alpine plants. I, I adore the, the dwarf ones, you know, like uh, acephilla, dobsonii, spadinia and so on. But I recall well when I had the nursery and we had the uh, acephilla aurea, which is quite a tall, spiky thing. It's just like 
you know, having a sword, these swords sticking up uh, about almost a meter, uh, and and I had two Jack Russell Terriers, and I was terrified that they would um, impale themselves on the uh, the Acephala aurea, and so I, I removed them with a long-handled saw. So there are there are beautiful Acephalas, as that's one of your other very important uh, genera in the alpine world here. It's an interesting concept because we often think of the little flowers, the little delicate flowers, well they're not that delicate if they can survive alpine conditions, but actually are we talking quite a broad range uh, of flora that might be found in alpine areas, some of them quite robust like your isophilia? Absolutely, yeah, there's no, no question. I mean I adore gentians and your gentians are slightly different in the flower uh, formation so they're not called gentians they're called gentianellas and again they predominantly have white flowers they're so beautiful and uh, I will hope to see perhaps one or two of them in flower this it's early in the alpine season at the moment you know January is often thought to be the perfect time to enjoy alpine flowers at their best here in New Zealand but I'm very hopeful that I will be able to see some beautiful alpines in flower. Other New Zealand-specific plants, we have to talk about the vegetable sheep. Of course we have a plant called the vegetable sheep. Absolutely. I mean, nowhere else in the world will you see um, hastias and raulia eximia uh, as vegetable sheep. I mean, I, I, I can't wait. That's probably going to be the highlight of my trip, to see vegetable sheep and um, you know, Do they look student. like sheep? Absolutely, yes, because, of course, um, they form this beautiful spherical cushion, uh, woolly cushion, and they tuck themselves, some, some of them sort of encapsulate themselves around the rocks, and some of them actually form between the rocks, and they are indeed a, a soft cushion uh, with the uh, root, root penetrating between the rocks. So... Really old established uh, plants are pro- probably, you know, many decades old in some cases. Um, will look just like a, a, um, a sheep. It's curious and on quite steep um, slopes and screes as well. Did we mention earlier a lot of alpine plants in this country are unisex? What is the relevance of that? I think the important thing to keep in mind is that um, most plants uh, require a a male and a female and most um, alpines uh, um, are cross-pollinated so it's beneficial to most plants to cross-fertilize so if you've if you've got a, an, an insect, whether it be a fly going from one plant to the other, you're going to get stronger progeny if you get crossed cross-pollination, cross-fertilization. Um, otherwise, if you, it's rather like with humans, if we all in, interbreeding, you would get a weak, weaker um, product at the end of it. So, I, I, you know, very often you, you do have self-fertile uh, plants and, and, and that is something that has adapted in, in this particular country. But generally speaking, pl- um, plants pr- will prefer to be cross-pollinated. Jim German, our guest, a renowned expert in alpine plants, former head gardener of the Branklin Garden in Perth, visiting New Zealand at the moment as a guest of the New Zealand Alpine Garden Society. You're listening to Nine to Noon, 23 minutes past 10 it is. Where else have you been? Just, I know, just the last uh, two or three weeks of lecturing in the United States. Uh, and 
what is the what is the sort of the compare and contrast that happens in different plants of the world? Uh, sorry, different parts of the world when it comes to alpine plants. Just how well, much do theirs differ? Yeah, tremendously. I mean, I, I I kicked off in in New York State in Syracuse, and then drove up to Vermont and New Hampshire, and then into Massachusetts, and then finally in speaking in New York Botanic Garden and. The plants uh, that they were growing um, are different. I mean, there is a tr- tremendous diversity of, of uh, alpine plant species in the Rocky Mountains, for example, in the U.S. and into Canada. And uh, um, so, yeah, the plants, if you had a nursery business and you, you had your New Zealand flora on one side and the North American alpines on another side and the Himalayan plants in another quarter, they do look very different, and the conditions that they require are exacting. So no matter where you're speaking, whether it's in the States, Canada, or or here, um, the, you do have to adapt your thinking to um, the conditions of the plants in nature, and perhaps more importantly, when you're speaking to a gardening group or specialist alpine society group, you have to understand where they're gardening, what what conditions is it very dry? Do they have very hard winters? Uh, is it softer? Uh, are we, is the climate change making it uh, so that we have less snow? Because w- when I was a laddie, we used to have proper um, snowfall in the winter, which of course alpine plants love. But now we, we could have, a, in Scotland, we could have minus uh, 12 Celsius at Christmas and then two or three weeks later, it's pouring with rain, and alpine plants can't stand this fluctuating cold, wet, mild, etc. So what is happening in various parts of the world? I know you've been in Europe, and of course so famous for its uh, alpine plants. Um, I know you've been in Europe, and and there's a great receding of glaciers happening there, as indeed is happening here as well. Uh, yes. How are the plants adapting for that matter? They're not liking it, Um when I was recently in the Dolomites, uh, which where the mountains are predominantly limestone, there are steep um, peaks, uh, um, very needle-shaped peaks there, and traditionally with, with glaciers running between these amazing 3,000-metre-high peaks, um, yeah, the glaciers are receding. Uh, but perhaps more importantly for me, when I'm botanizing, I see that um, some of the... Um, evergreen shrubs are being frosted because normally they would be covered with snow right until early June and the snow has receded, not glaciers, but talk about snow, snow cover is receding much more quickly with the rising temperatures and so they don't have that protection in May and at that time, they could still be subjected to low temperatures, night temperatures, uh, frost. So you very often see frosted plants in nature that should have been covered with snow. Your specialty is the alpines, but as we said, you worked as head gardener at Branklin Garden in Perth, and you still volunteer at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh, one of the great botanic gardens. What is it that makes a really balanced garden, a really balanced ecosystem? What are some of the key things for people to think of as they work in their own gardens? Not not really to compare with botanic gardens, but as a private uh, gardener, I, I 
think of my wife and and family. What are they going to enjoy? So I, I don't want to have a garden that is too freaky and and uh, specialised. Whereas working in the botanic gardens in Edinburgh, our job is conservation. It's a scientific body, and yesterday I had the privilege to visit uh, uh, your own botanic garden here in Christchurch and meeting up with Grant the. Um, curator of the Alpine Department, we were talking about the responsibility that he has and that we in Botanic Gardens have to to look after um, these alpine plants because some of them will become extinct in nature and the responsibility, therefore, on a botanic garden is conservation. So we have seed banks in Botanic Gardens. So we collect the seed, we save the seed carefully in a, uh, in, in a cool environment so that it can be kept forever. But in a private garden, it's something quite different. We're, we're, we're having to deal with the climate change, and but at the same time try to have an attractive garden that we want to sit out and have a glass of wine in in the evening. Jim, thank you very much. Jim German, who is visiting the country at the moment, is a guest of the New Zealand Alpine Garden Society.